So this morning's scripture reading is going to continue on in the book of Jonah. So I encourage you to follow along on the screen uh, behind me. Uh, This morning we're going to be reading uh, just the first three verses of the book of Jonah. We read the whole first chapter last week as an introduction. Um, This morning's sermon is going to focus just on verse three, but we're going to read verses one through three um, for context. Um, But as, as you, uh, as you listen to the word of God in just a moment, I want to introduce first um, our, our uh, preacher this morning, because uh, it's not me. I'm not going to introduce myself. So this morning we had the pleasure of hearing from Mike Lilly, uh, who you just need to know he's an extraordinary person. And he's become a dear friend of mine over the last two years since I've been in Salem. So Mike, uh, Mike pastored a church in Salem for a couple of years, planting it. Um, and then in the last few months, uh, as, as their church has, has dwindled, they've come and joined in with us here. And so he's an extraordinarily gifted and well-trained teacher of the good news. Um, he went to Gordon-Conwell just like I did. We overlapped a little bit. Uh, his, his wife Enza and Sarah became dear friends um, at Gordon-Conwell, and that's just deepened uh, since we've moved here. So you're going to learn a lot from him uh, just because he's, he's just a totally different style preacher than I am, which is good for us all. Uh, so we look forward to hearing more about your uh, teaching from Jonah this morning. But with that introduction, um, Jonah 1, 1 through 3, this is the word of the Lord. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Mike, we welcome you. Good morning. Thanks, Stephen, for that kind introduction and your generosity and, you know, sharing the pulpit. Um, Let me just tell you, that is a unique thing among pastors to start with. And for, uh, you know, a guy who hasn't been preaching for, we were just talking on this on Friday in men's group, for a guy who hasn't been like a lead pastor for 20 years, sharing your pulpit is is a big thing. And Stephen is very generous in doing that. We are all very blessed, uh, you know, to have him uh, leading this church. So uh, if you'll allow me just to pray for a moment uh, before we get started. Father, thank you, Lord, for your goodness, your kindness, your faithfulness, Lord, uh, in giving us your word and the truths that are, that are there uh, for each of us. Thank you, Lord, for this church uh, and bringing your people together. Would, would you, in your kindness today, give us ears to hear and eyes to see would you fill us with a desire to be faithful to carry out uh, the things that you call us to through your word today? In Jesus' name, amen. A long time ago, no, really, a long time ago, I enlisted in the Army. I left for basic training on January 3rd, 1985. There, 
I learned some things about myself. One of the things I learned about myself is I really did not know my left from my right. Or at least that's how it seemed because every time the drill sergeant said, platoon, left face, I went right. Every time the drill sergeant said, platoon, right face, I went left. Every time the drill sergeant said, while we're marching, column left, there I was running into the guy next to me, going right. Now in basic training, as some of you may know, that kind of mistake is no small thing Although it may seem like it to you, it's no small thing because everybody gets to stop and do push-ups. As you can imagine, I was very popular. Eventually, it was so bad, the drill sergeant called me to the front of the formation, took out a Sharpie, and wrote a great big L and R on my hands. I'm sure his intent was to embarrass me, but he also handed me that marker, told me to do it every day. And in truth, it was a great help because I actually would look down, you know, the corner of my eye when he started the command to make sure I was going in the right direction. And eventually that all became muscle movement and I, I stopped having a problem with that. It really did help. Now, by the way, just a few years ago, I was telling someone that story and they said, oh, that's a classic sign of dyslexia. Do you have this, this, and this? I was like, yeah, actually. Pretty cool. Anyway, just to say, I, there wasn't, I just wasn't a terrible human and I, I, there may have been a reason. In our passage today from Jonah 1.3, um, we find something similar. God commands Jonah to go one way and Jonah goes the other way. Like my experience in basic training, turning the wrong way will come at a price for Jonah and for a bunch of other folks as well. You won't see that all today though. But unlike me, Jonah wasn't dyslexic. Jonah was disobedient. And today, though, I'm going to be preaching from 1-3 um, for the sake of context. We'll, we'll be referring back into Jonah 1 and 1 through 3 as well. So listen again to that, to the, to the words of Jonah 1-3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Today I want us to consider why a person, why you and I would flee from the presence of the Lord. Now, you may be out there thinking, ah, I would never flee from the presence of the Lord. And you know what? May God grant it that that would be so in your life. 
But I can tell you from my personal experience, I am constantly fleeing from the Lord. Much more than I would like to admit. And I hope that by the time we're done today, you may see where you, like Jonah, have also paid the price to go down into the boat so that you can flee from the Lord. I also hope, though, that by the time we're done today, you will see that God, in his goodness, continues to extend steadfast love and mercy to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And that through Jesus, we can run instead of away from the presence of the Lord. We can run to the presence of the Lord. Amen? Now, Jonah is a fascinating character. Stephen talked about this a little bit uh, last week. Jonah is a fascinating character in the Old Testament. As books go, I don't think there's another one that's really like it in terms of God's desire to see even the worst of Israel's enemies brought to repentance. There's no other book like it in the Old Testament as well that has one of the primary characters, a prophet of God, fleeing from God. When you and I, for instance, would read Hebrews 11 and go down that great corridor, the halls of faith, all those great people who have answered God's call and followed after him, Jonah does not come to mind. Consider then, who might we think of as those who have answered that great call? You might think, oh, Elijah or Isaiah, maybe Abraham. That's a good one. Let's go with that. In Genesis 12, God calls Abram out of his homeland to go into an unknown land. God makes him promises. In short, he tells Abram, if, he, if, God, if, if Abram will follow God, if Abram will follow him, that God will make him a great nation. Bless him, bless his name, and make him great, that he will protect him, and that he will make him a blessing to all the families of the earth. How does Abram respond to that? Well, in verse 4 it says, And Abram went. Now, you are keen listeners, and you might be saying, (laughs) hold on, Mike. Hold on just a second here. You're comparing apples to oranges. Abram is being called to receive a blessing, whereas Jonah is being called to preach to Israel's greatest enemy in their capital city. It's a suicide mission for Jonah as he's looking at it. So Jonah has lots of reasons to flee. All right, well, I'll bite on that. All right, well, let's continue and look a little more then at Abram. Now, when you think about all the promises that we just heard about, that that, that God made to Abram, that he's going to be a great nation, that he's going to be the father of many peoples. 
That, that literally, if you were to read through that whole story, that he would have more children, more people than the, than the sands of the sea, more than the stars of the sky. That's how great the descendants were going to be for Abram. The thing is that before he could have all these descendants, before kings would flow out of his line, he actually had to have a child. He got these promises when he was 75 years old. And for 25 years, he waited. Through all sorts of things going on in his life, Abram had to wait and trust in the goodness of God. All of God's promises to Abram hinged on one thing, an heir. Well, eventually at 99 years old, Sarah, his wife, becomes pregnant with their first child. She gave birth to Isaac when Abram was now, now Abraham is a hundred years old. And like I said, all of God's promises to, to Abraham as he understood them hinged on this son, Isaac. So you can imagine his joy at Isaac's birth. You can imagine his joy as he watched him grow, start to walk, start to run, start to play with other children. You can imagine his joy as he watches him grow into his teen years. You can imagine his joy that, wow, finally, we're going to see the promises fulfilled. But imagine Abraham's horror. In Genesis 22, as God called to Abraham to sacrifice his son, the son whom he loved, the son of promise, to sacrifice him as a burnt offering on a distant mountain. Friends, if there was ever a reason to flee from the presence of the Lord, Abraham had it. Yet, how does he respond? How does he respond to what appears to us to be a ludicrous demand from God? A ludicrous demand that will literally cancel out every other promise that he's made to Abraham. We see the answer in verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. How could God ask Abraham to do that? How could Abraham do what God asked? For nearly 40 years now, God, Abraham had been following God. Watching 
and waiting for the promises to be fulfilled. And now God was asking him to destroy the one visible, tangible hope he had of God's promises. How could he just rise up the next morning and head to the mountain to sacrifice his only son whom he loved? The son of promise. The simple but incredibly deep answer is that Abraham trusted in the goodness of God. When Isaac, his son, saw that they had fire and that they had wood for the sacrifice, do you know what he did? He asked. He asked in confusion, where's the sacrifice, Dad? How does Abraham respond? In verse 8, he says, God will provide for himself a lamb for the sacrifice. Abraham trusted in the goodness of God. Church, what's the difference between Abraham and Jonah when they were asked to do the unthinkable? What was the difference between these two men when they faced a call from God from which they could make no sense and could see no good thing coming out. The difference was that Abraham trusted in the goodness of God and headed into the presence of the Lord. While Jonah did not trust in God's goodness and fled from the presence of the Lord. Abraham trusted God. He Trusted that God knew all the circumstances better than he did. And he trusted that God was good and would work all things together for good. Jonah, on the other hand, did not trust that God knew all the circumstances. Jonah did not trust in God's goodness. He could not see any good of going to Nineveh. He couldn't see anything good coming out of that. So he chose a different course. Jonah got on a boat and fled to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Let's look again at Jonah 1. Verse 1 tells us that the word of the Lord came to Jonah in verse 2, God gives Jonah a command. That is, that is Jonah's calling, right? He says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Yet how does Jonah respond to that? Verse 3 says, but Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. There he paid and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Our idea of good and God's idea of good do not always agree. They're not always the same. 
See, God's goodness is intricately bound up in his steadfast love, his righteousness, his justice, his mercy. They're literally inseparable qualities of God. Without them, God would not be God. He would not be worthy of praise. He would not be worthy of glory. Yet the wellspring of God's goodness is eternal. And the problem is that we are finite. We're limited. You and I, each one of us, have this invisible stamp that we can't see, and it's an expiration date. We're limited. God can see the threads of his goodness woven throughout the tapestry of time. God sees the end from the beginning. And God knows that he will accomplish all the good that he intends. It's not a question in his mind. But we only see a small part. And because of that, when God calls us into something that we see no immediate good in, we distrust God's goodness. Here lies the problem with Jonah. He could not see any good in what God was commanding, and therefore he refused to obey God and fled his presence. Notice how in the passage, the sin of Nineveh goes up to God. And all the descriptions of Jonah are going down and away from God. Twice at the beginning and at the end of verse 3, the author makes it clear that Jonah is fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Jonah is told to go to Nineveh, about 700 kilometers to the east of where Jonah lives. And instead, Jonah flees toward the west, towards Tarshish, the farthest known western city. It's actually located probably out in Spain, on the western coast of Spain. Like more like 5,000 kilometers to the west, away from where God was telling him to go. Jonah's disobedience is clear from the outset, from the very beginning of this book. See, and not believing in God's goodness is at the core of sin. Not trusting in goods, God's goodness is literally at the core of the very first sin. Take a moment to consider Genesis 3. We'll start back a little. In Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth and everything in them. Every living thing is brought forth by God. On day 6, God creates man in his own image. And at the end of all of that, he says, this is very, very good. This is very good. He makes a garden for the man. It's perfect. He places the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, into the middle of it, into the middle of that garden. They want for nothing. They have everything. Literally, if you look at what John or Genesis 3.8 is telling us, that God comes and walks with them in the cool of the evening. How cool is that? I can't even imagine it. 
God gave them one rule. One. Don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One rule. That's it. Just one. Don't eat from that tree because when you do, you will surely die. But then, in Genesis 3, what happens? The serpent comes. Most of us know the story. In the first verses of Genesis 3, the serpent comes and asks Eve, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice the line of question. It intentionally paints God in a negative light. And, and even though it sounds outlandish to us, like every tree, you can't eat any tree in the garden, in its scope it seems outlandish, it plants the seed of doubt. The seed that God is withholding some good. Eve replies to the serpent that they can eat from all the trees in the garden except from the one in the center of the garden. And if they eat from that one, they'll die. She's got that correct generally. Next, the serpent says in verses four and five, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Did you catch this? God is, I mean, the serpent is literally calling God a liar. He is portraying God as petty and as selfish. And now he's clearly suggesting that God is withholding good from Adam and Eve. He's withholding the best thing from them. They could be like God. Notice also that neither Adam or Eve refute the serpent. They don't uphold the good truths about God that they know. Eve looks at the fruit. Verse 6 tells us that the fruit was clearly a delight to the eyes. She believed the serpent that it would be good to eat, that he would make her wise. She did not believe God that it would cause her death. She believed that God was withholding some good, something that was very good for her. And because God was withholding something that was very good from her, God was not good. She believed She believed that she was more fit to choose what was good for her than God. She could not see the good in what God had commanded. So she disobeyed, as did Adam, and they ate the fruit that God commanded them not to. What was the result? She and Adam suddenly became aware that they were naked. Sin had entered the world and with it, guilt and shame. They hid in the woods to flee from the presence of the Lord. 
Friends, when we disobey God and his commands, it is rooted in our mistrust of God's goodness. Mistrust in God's goodness leads to our belief that we are a better judge of what is good than God is. Like Adam and Eve, and Eve, we are seeking to put ourselves in God's place. We mistrust God, and when we do, we cannot see the good in what he's called us to do. And when we don't see that good, we choose to do what we think is best. We've set ourselves up to be God. And that's idolatry. When we mistrust God's goodness, we are believing the oldest lie in the world. When we believe that God doesn't really have our good in mind, it certainly follows that we will do what we think is best. And as a result, we will flee from the presence of the Lord. It's true in your life. It's true in my life. It was true in Jonah's life. And because of it, he refused to follow God's command and went down into a boat, fled the presence of the Lord. But it was not without a cost, was it? He had to pay a fare. Jonah had to pay a fare to go down into the boat. Jonah had to pay a price to flee the presence of the Lord. His refusal to follow the Lord and his desperate need to get away from God came at a cost. Even as it does for you and I. Even as it did for Adam and Eve. When we distrust God's goodness and believe that we know better than God what is good for us, and then disobey God and go on our own way, we have sinned. The result of that sin as the same for Adam and Eve as it is for us today, it's death. The results, though, go on in our daily lives. It's shame. It's guilt. It causes us to hide and to blame. It causes us to flee from God's presence. Friends, maybe in this short message today, you have seen your own life, seen where you are, maybe fleeing from God. Maybe you see it in someone that you love. But in truth, it's all of our story. We hear God's call in our life. We don't see the good in what he's laying out before us. And so we take matters into our own hands and do our own thing. Heading in a different direction than what God called us to. We cannot see how anything that God is calling us to in this moment could end in anything good. So we just reject him. We refuse to trust him. And instead of trust in him, we trust in ourselves to know better. We put ourselves in God's place. We make our own will and our own desires our idols. And we pay whatever cost is necessary to get what we want. Like Jonah, we will pay the price that is required to get as far away from God as possible. But let me just paint you one last picture. One from scripture. God 
is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. God is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. And even though we rejected him in love, God sent his ultimate expression of good in his son, Jesus Christ, who dwelt among us. And unlike Jonah, when Jesus received the call of God to follow him, even to the cross, he did not flee. Jesus could have said, if your idea, God, of my good is dying on a cross, I have a different idea and I'm going to go set up a righteous kingdom somewhere else where you're not. But Jesus didn't do that, did he? He did not doubt God's goodness. And when the call came, he said, not my will, but yours be done. He trusted his heavenly father. Where Jonah distrusted God's goodness, Jesus embraced it. Where Jonah refused to answer the call of God, Jesus carried it out completely. Where Jonah paid a price to flee from the presence of God, Jesus paid the price fully for you and I to be eternally in the presence of God. Jesus paid the price of our sins and our mistrust of God so that we could run into the presence of God and never need to hide or flee. And if you're here today and you're aware that like Jonah, you have mistrusted God's goodness, maybe refused to obey his call, maybe fled from his presence, then please let me tell you that Jesus is here with us today. God's ultimate expression of his goodness is amongst us today. And he is extending his hand to you and saying, come, follow me. Stop running. Stop hiding. Stop fleeing. Come, follow me. And friends, all you have to do is say, all right, yes, Jesus, I'll do that. And if you do that, you will no longer need to live under the burden of guilt and shame. No longer need to fear the presence of God. Instead, you can run in his loving arms that are opened to you. If you do that today, please let Stephen or I know, because we'd love to run with you in that journey into God's presence. For the rest of you, let me encourage you this week to trust in God's goodness as you walk in his way, knowing that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, has paid the ultimate price for us to run into the presence of a loving God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mike, for such a clear invitation to the goodness of God in the the gospel of Jesus, the good news that he's extending to us 
So as Javier comes up to lead us in our final song, actually, as he prepares to lead us in Jesus Paid It All, I want to read a line from a song we already sang today from Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It says this, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Let me say that again. Prone to wander, prone to flee like Jonah did. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. So this is an invitation for you to to give your heart to God and ask him to seal it so that you won't flee from him any longer, that you would run as Mike said, to his goodness and trust in the goodness and the grace that he offers. So would you please stand as we sing, Jesus paid it all, and this will kind of be our closing, closing anthem for one another. Let's sing song of worship.